0: From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, probably the best news we can give you right now is that it is now May 2020. April 2020 is officially behind us. What a month that was. And it ended up on Thursday with some news uh, that could set the stage for uh, some changes in schools this spring. Uh, Governor Brad Little, another news conference. We listened in. You wrote about it. Let's get caught up there.
1: Yeah, the big news this week, Governor Little allowed the extended stay home order, the statewide stay home order to expire at midnight uh, at the end of the day on Thursday, April 30th. And so the first stage of Idaho's gradual reopening Uh, Begins today, Friday, May 1st. A lot of this really applies to businesses, but crucially, lifting the statewide stay home order is the first criteria that local schools would need to meet if they do hope to reopen yet this academic year. If you go back um, a couple, three weeks at this point, the State Board of Education approved that local criteria that school officials would need to meet working in conjunction with public health officials if they hope to reopen this academic year. Uh, otherwise, schools across the state remain closed and remote learning continues. But that's the first criteria. And I spoke with Mike Keckler, a spokesperson for the State Board of Education, who confirmed it, that lifting the statewide stay home order satisfies the first element of that criteria. And uh, there's additional criteria from there. But uh, Kevin, you've Uh, spoken with or heard from some school districts that are interested in maybe trying to return
0: uh, as early as next week or so, right? This could move fairly quickly based on our reporting, and Devin Botkin, our Eastern Idaho reporter, was in on this reporting as well. The Westside School District is a small school district. It's in Franklin County. That's not too far from the Utah border. Uh, The superintendent there told Devin that he's hoping to reopen as early as next week, so we could start to see some movement on this fairly quickly, and the reason, obviously, we could see some movement fairly quickly is a lot of schools are still scheduled to wrap up their their academic year on or around Memorial Day, so here we are recording this on May 1st, three weeks away from the end of the school year, so if you're going to do any kind of reopen, if you're going to get students back into a traditional classroom setting, if you're gonna try to do some sort of a graduation ceremony, you need to get open fairly quickly. So that's why a district like a Westside might be trying to get open by next week. What I'm also hearing, and I wrote about this uh, this week, is there are schools uh, in rural Idaho who if they're not gonna open entirely, they at least want to open their doors a little bit to help students who are at risk students who are falling behind, students who may be in danger of uh, falling behind on their graduation requirements. Cascade School District is already doing that. Uh, This week, they opened up their computer lab for uh, students who are falling behind. They can come in by appointment. They can come in for about a half hour at a time. They are supposed to be about 10 feet apart from any other students, so they are practicing social distancing. And the idea is to provide extra help for students who are maybe not getting that kind of support that they need at home, maybe need some one-on-one time with an instructor, maybe need a little bit more structure. So Cascade is doing that. Uh, when I talked to the superintendent in the Payette School District, Robin Gilbert, she's hoping to do some sort of a, a similar plan to help at-risk students. Bruno Grandview, Ryan Cantrell, the superintendent, uh, emailed me this week and said that he's trying to do something similar. So even if schools don't open entirely, I think you're going to see uh, some schools try to do an opening that's more targeted to students who need extra help. That's something to watch for in the next few days, and the, you know, because it's going to move fairly quickly.
1: It is going to move fairly quickly. There's a couple points that I think are worth just exploring right here uh, before moving on. But the idea of helping some students and doing some things for some students who may be behind that kind of fits in with some discussions I've been hearing at some of these meetings at the state level. Um, about being on the lookout for potential summer slide, uh, for widening mm-hmm. of the achievement gaps, for focusing on rigor, uh, for making sure kids don't fall through the cracks or slip behind during what is obviously for most people an unprecedented uh, disruption uh, to the school system and to their lives and basically everything uh, we know. Um, So that really kind of does square with some of these conversations that people are trying to be aware of that and know that, you know, the experience right now across the state is pretty different. It ranges from packets being sent home in some areas to fairly robust full online learning programs in other school districts. And so a lot of people are starting to talk about what they can do to help kids who may be falling behind to make sure that we don't see those achievement gaps widen and just to try to do the best we
0: can um, right now. And I I think too, it casts a light on the discussion that we heard at the state board of education's meeting on Monday. And you wrote about this, the state board talking about contingency plans in case remote learning needs to continue in the fall. And obviously that's not anybody's preference. And governor Little has talked uh, repeatedly the past couple of weeks about believing that schools will be able to reopen in the fall. But the State Board is talking about trying to set up a contingency plan in case that doesn't happen with an eye towards uniformity, with an eye towards uh, trying to make sure that uh, schools meet their constitutional mandate if you have to uh, continue with this model into the fall. I thought that was interesting, and it wasn't a huge Deal at the time,
1: uh, but on on Monday the state board did start talking about investing in the statewide system that they could use to, you know, communicate with students and families, share resources, but also deliver online learning content and curriculum and push that out to students. Uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra really kind of took the lead on that. Said other states are quite frankly ahead of us and we're behind when it comes to this area, but she did. Acknowledge, and this was kind of the first time I had seen this at the State Board of Education level, that if there is concern that there could be a spike in COVID-19 cases in the fall or more of an impact from this pandemic, that we need to be making these plans now and bracing for that now to make that as seamless as possible. And there's a lot that goes into that. there were certainly some reminders about the school net system. I think it was only just five years mm-hmm. ago in 2015, the state finally pulled the plug on that school net system, which was a statewide online uh, instructional system. I think we had reported that the state spent uh, certainly tens of millions of dollars on that system before pulling... The plug. Um, the
0: number I remember is sixty-one million dollars. That was not all taxpayer money, as I recall. Full disclosure: uh, the Albertson Foundation, which which funds Idaho Education News, uh, was a contributor to SchoolNet, but yes, a multi-million-dollar project that did not perform as as hoped for. So, you know, you heard that in the state board meeting on Monday. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it was Sean Keoh, uh, particularly bringing up the experience of school net and reminding the board that uh, there are lessons to be learned from, uh, from the past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's
1: notable the state board didn't spend any money, didn't purchase anything this week. The purchasing and contracting process could take weeks or even a few months, but they've begun that discussion in earnest and I expect them to... Um, I think the next step is going to be to reach out to school superintendents and district classroom, or district technology directors and see what their needs are, see what their current systems are, um, and see what would help people. But uh, Ybarra painted this picture that it does go back to the constitutional requirements for uniformity and thoroughness. She said it doesn't seem like we're meeting those right now when you talk about uniformity especially, given that some kids have a packet of printouts and some kids have full online learning but they know the devices is going to be an issue connectivity and access is going to be an issue so it's not an easy thing even you know they know they want to take some of the Idaho share of stimulus money and put it towards this but it's still going to be expensive and it's still going to be hard to reach everyone in Idaho Uh, but stay tuned I thought that was an interesting discussion it was the first time they'd really acknowledged this could continue into the fall and I think we're at an important time Here in the month of May, with the state's response to the coronavirus, we have some districts looking to potentially reopen. We have planning ahead. So I still think that the next month is going to be crucial for setting policy
0: and seeing where things stand. Right. And I think the next month going into the summer, if the state board is talking about setting up contingency plans... One thing you do have if you're the state board and one thing you do have if you're Superintendent Navarra and the State Department of Education is you will have some time. In the summer, you will have some time to figure out what worked in this sudden rollout. Okay, you've got spring break and you've got to come out of it with a remote learning plan that you've created within the span of a few days. At least when you have the summer, you can take a step back and you can figure out, well, what has worked, what didn't work, what do we need to Shore up. What do we need to to fix? So, I think it makes sense for the state board to be talking about this. I think it makes sense for a superintendent of our to be talking about this. Even if the schools can reopen as planned in the fall, you have this benefit of time. You should take advantage. And, and just to be clear, it was nobody's preference um,
1: to to do this. Nobody is hoping that there will be a disruption in the fall. It was more like there are a lot of unknowns out there, and how do we prepare? Uh, for this but I don't think anybody (laughs) is hoping that we have social distancing uh, for an extended period of time but I think the new reality is uh, to prepare for that possibility I think is more where the state is at at this point. Right
0: this is nobody's preference and I I think you know that's clear I I don't think the state board wants to go down this road in the fall I don't think uh, teachers administrators parents uh, students want to be going down this road but we don't know what lies in store with the coronavirus. We don't know what the summer is going to look like. We don't know what that, if there's going to be a second wave of the virus, how that might affect schools, how that might affect reopening or reopening and maybe closing during the course of the twenty twenty one school year. That's anything's possible at this point. So to plan for contingencies uh, seems like common sense. Yeah, and I know we'll be busy over the next week or two
1: looking at local schools and what their plans are for the rest of this academic
0: year and so there will a lot Just watching for the follow. reopening is going to be a big story here in the next few days and as schools open, it's going to be a story for us to see how that works. You yeah. Know, are that. they able to practice social distancing in a classroom? What are attendance rates like if you reopen the school? You know, a lot of things that we're going to be looking for uh, when this occurs
1: yeah the absentee policies that they yeah. develop what are the what are the cleaning and sanitation plans like how often does that happen uh, the governor's kind of
0: emergency plans do you set up for staffers who may be at increased risk of uh, developing covid 19 if they uh, if they contract the virus so a lot of things to watch for this is a story that is uh, going to be a a big job for us in the next few weeks.
1: Yeah, and it's a good opportunity to point out, we would love to hear from you. We know we have a lot of educators and administrators who listen to the podcast every week. And so if your district or school is going through this and you'd like to share uh, what your experience is like or share some information, uh, you can reach out to us through the website on Twitter, at Kevin Richard is how you reach him, at Clark Corbin. But our email addresses are also available On the website, but we would love to hear from those schools uh, and those school officials who are going through this process what their experience is like and what information they would like to share with either their patrons or their colleagues across the state.
0: Well, let's move to another topic. Let's move to a topic where we have uh, Sherry Abara and the State Board of Education, maybe not on the same page, maybe not talking as uh, (laughs) as cordially. What a lawsuit. And this thing just broke on us uh, late Friday afternoon, early Friday evening. You wrote the initial story about this. Uh, I followed up with it uh, Thursday with more of a step back piece, but a really stunning lawsuit from uh, State Superintendent Jerry Ibarra uh, taking the legislature and the state board to court.
1: Yeah, this really represents, as we've written about a couple of times this week, the escalation of a, feud, uh, of a dispute that had been simmering, and it involves funding, and it involves personnel. And right now, uh, Superintendent Ybarra, the legislature, and the State Board of Education are all in the thick of it. Uh, because, like you mentioned, on Friday, uh, she used recently appointed Special Deputy Attorney General David Leroy to file suit against the State Board of Education, upon which she is a member, and we'll get into that, and against the Idaho legislature, uh, attempting to block the transfer of 18 full-time employees and about $2.7 million. And this would be set to take place July 1st. And I think this lawsuit really represents uh, the superintendent taking a strong fight to the issue and escalating the issue. And you really looked at this in depth, Kevin, the politics of it, the timing of it, a lot of intrigue here and a lot to get into. What
0: what jumps out at you? Well, the fact that the case has escalated to a lawsuit and uh, the, the fact that Jerry Ibarra and David Leroy hope to get this before the Supreme Court this month, that doesn't necessarily surprise me as much. And the crux of the lawsuit really gets to constitutional duties and whether the legislature and the state board have Acting together, uh, taken away some of Superintendent Navarro's, uh constitutionally protected duties as a as an elected state officer. That part of the lawsuit, as I was reading it, that is uh, a fairly. You no, know, I'm not going to say dry. I mean, it's interesting stuff if you're a student of uh, of politics. It's it's interesting stuff, but it is a, a fairly jurisdictional dispute. As I was reading the lawsuit, the section that jumped off the page for me was the allegation that what happened in the 2020 legislative session, the, the taking away the 18 positions and the $2.7 million was political payback that goes back to 2019 when legislators were trying to rewrite the school of funding formula and Superintendent Ibarra was lukewarm to the idea. That allegation really shocked me. It was it was amazing to see that kind of a, a broad allegation in a lawsuit, and that's kind of where I spent a lot of my reporting time this week, uh, breaking that down, because making that allegation and personalizing it to say that Ibarra was the subject of retaliation because she blocked a funding formula rewrite that was supported by the Speaker of the House, not named by name in, in that passage of the lawsuit, but we know who we're talking about here. He's a and defendant you know, in the, the suit. Legislature. Wow, that you don't see that in a lawsuit very often, and we read a lot of litigation in, as part of our job. It, it's rare to see something that uh, you know that stark in, in a lawsuit. So. You know, I asked David Leroy to elaborate on that a little bit. He was not going to uh, go through all of his uh, his discovery. He's not going to litigate this thing in uh, in Idaho Education News. I understand that. But he suggested that this is something that has been uh, expressed by members of the legislature, that there was a, a political retribution going on here. When I contacted uh, Speaker Bedke on Wednesday, about all he wanted to say on the record was that's nonsense. It sounds like a short interview. Well, yes. I mean, as far as, you know, yes. I mean, that was about all he wanted to say on the record. But that's uh, that's still saying quite a bit. And one thing is for sure. We were both there in 2019. We know this uh, firsthand. That funding formula debate, you had a lot of players involved. And to suggest, as if you read the lawsuit in a vacuum, to suggest that this was uh A funding formula rewrite that was uh, greased to go and Sherry Ibarra stopped it single-handedly is certainly not the case. We had superintendents from big districts and small districts speaking out against the funding formula rewrite. We had members of the House Education Committee, we were both there, walk out, uh, blocking a bill from even being introduced in sort of this unusual form of mutiny. I mean, to suggest that this is of our against the world on the school funding formula, that's not exactly what the lawsuit says, but that's what the lawsuit kind of infers. Uh, that's just not the case. We, we were there. We know that. It Yeah.
1: It I remember speaking to a coalition of Western Idaho superintendents who were kind of speaking with one voice and had questions about this. I remember several pages of spreadsheets with red ink, and it was just difficult to figure out what the formula was going to do. But I I think one of the factors was would districts be treated differently and would this hurt small and remote districts at the expense of growing districts? And that's sort of how it works when money follows the student, but that's a different discussion. I want to get back to the lawsuit and the implications with this lawsuit um, because there's just all kinds of questions about this point about, you know, she's seeking... The, she, being Superintendent Ibarra, is seeking an expedited hearing uh, before the Idaho Supreme Court. And we don't know if that will happen or not,
0: but there's all kinds of questions here, right, Kevin? Right. And I have to wonder, not just filing the lawsuit over jurisdictional issues, but to, to personalize it and to make it into a lawsuit, at least partly about a legislature and a State Board of Education trying to diminish the role of the superintendent, trying to basically, you know, if you can't get rid of the position of superintendent, neutralize it to the point where it's not very meaningful to have a superintendent. To to turn this into a, a narrative of political retribution, I have to wonder how that is going to affect the working relationships between Ibarra and the legislature, the working relationship between Ibarra and her fellow members of the state board. Yeah, we we saw a little bit of the embodiment of that on Thursday afternoon. Uh, The State Board of Education met behind closed doors in an executive session to talk about the lawsuit, which they're entitled to do under uh, open meeting law. Superintendent Ibarra recused herself from that conversation, even though she's a member of the state board. Ibarra and uh, Debbie Critchfield, the president of the state board, agreed in advance that Ibarra would uh, recuse herself from those discussions. So you're, you're already seeing a split uh, within the state board on this. I, I'm, it's going to be very interesting to see what the relationship is going forward, uh, Ibarra and the rest of the state board, Ibarra and the legislature. And let's face it, we've uh, talked about this many times on this podcast, uh, Ibarra and the legislature. It's been kind of a, a rocky relationship. Uh, a lot of uh, Superintendent Navarre's initiatives have not uh, gotten through the legislature. Whether it's uh, the, the, the rural, uh, the, the rural, uh, rural schools network, the rural schools model, which uh, has never gotten through. Funding for mastery-based education has been something she's been pushing for for years. Uh, the school the security plan. Yet, I, it. I mean, you know. Ibarra's legislative track record hasn't been very good to begin with, and this kind of a lawsuit I can't imagine is going to make uh, things much easier for her going into a 2021 legislative session where money could be extremely tight, where there could be some very uh, dire circumstances facing uh, public schools. But first things first, we'll, we'll watch and see what happens with this lawsuit, as I mentioned uh David Leroy hopes to get an expedited hearing. He hopes to get this before the uh, Supreme Court sometime this month, because, again, July 1st is the date that all of this is supposed to go into effect. Uh, July 1 is when these 18 positions are supposed to transfer over to the state board. So this is moving quickly as well. Certainly interesting. I mean, we
1: don't know how it will play out, but we do know that the state board of education and the Idaho legislature are two of the groups that Ibarra needs to work with perhaps the closest uh, to implement yeah. education policies and to do her job. But there was a great line uh, this week, Kevin, that you had about how this is gonna be fantastic, uh, publicly funded political theater.
0: It, it will be. I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be a fun hearing. If, if this does go before the Supreme Court, it's gonna be interesting stuff. And, you know, we do not know at this point to what degree is this taxpayer funded? As I speak here on Friday morning, May 1st, I have a public records request in with the Attorney General's office to find out exactly what the financial relationship is between the state and David Leroy, who's been brought on as a special deputy Attorney General. Well, you know, that, that's we don't know at this point what that means in terms of dollars. We don't have a contract in, in front of us. We don't know the, the particulars financially. Uh, perhaps by the time you're listening to this podcast, that's going to be something that we will have uh, received and something I will have had the chance to write about. So stay tuned about that. Lots of layers to this onion.
1: Lots of layers. I know we're going to continue uh, to follow it going forward. As far as I know, we maybe haven't even seen a response officially from uh, the legislature or the State Board of Education. So still on the lookout for that. Still on the lookout for any sort of response or acknowledgement from the Idaho Supreme Court. The homepage would be a good place uh, to follow uh, later today and next week as we hopefully get more information. It's, of course, www.idahoednews.org where we put all our top stories. But I know, Kevin, before we moved on, you want to talk a little bit more about the higher education situation and Boise State University in particular.
0: This feels like it's becoming a weekly segment where we talk about the financial hardships facing the higher education system, but we had another story, another development on this Monday afternoon. Uh, Boise State University announced a plan that's going to move its uh, professional staffers. These are folks who are not faculty, but they're the professional staff. They work on a salaried basis, and usually... Uh, they work on a contract basis. Usually uh, these employees have a nine-month contract or maybe a 12-month contract. What Boise State is doing with those employees is moving them off of contracts and turning them into at-will employees. And what that means is that if the financial straits continue at Boise State, the university would be in a much more flexible position to Eliminate positions if that's what it takes to cut back hours, to uh, to change employment status on the fly. You know, Marlene Trump, uh, president of Boise State, sent out an email about this on Monday and laid out the financial implications, uh, that the financial threats that Boise State is facing at this point. We've talked about the prospect of declining enrollment. She cited a national study that indicates that universities could see a 22% decrease in enrollment. That is thousands of students uh, for Boise State and a huge chunk of money because uh, universities derive so much of their operating revenue from tuition and fees. She talked about the prospect of additional cuts in state support. You know, Governor Little has told state agencies to write a budget that factors in the possibility of a 5% budget holdback. Well, for Boise State, a 5% budget holdback is about $5 million right there. So, uh, you know, that's another factor. She even talked about the prospect of college football. What happens if the NCAA or the Mountain West Conference decides to suspend the college football season, postpone the college football season, shorten the season, or have games in front of empty stadiums? All of these things that are being talked about at the national level, any of which could affect Boise State's athletic department because that's the driver. That's the yeah. program that pays for all of the other athletic programs when you factor in the TV revenues and the ticket revenues and the concessions. So her letter spelled out a lot of long-term financial threats facing Boise State as we as we work through this uh, coronavirus outbreak and this pandemic. So what they're doing with these contracts is much more of a long-term approach to the funding situation. Last week, Boise State's furloughs, uh, staff furloughs, that was more of a short-term response to the short-term cash flow challenges that Boise State is facing, along with all the other colleges and universities. So, like I say, this feels like a weekly installment here on the podcast, because what we don't know about what's going to happen at the universities and the colleges is, is pretty scary stuff. I've talked about it before, how the college university presidents are in kind of this near state of panic because they don't really know what to expect uh, going forward. This announcement from Boise state is just further evidence of, uh, you know, how seriously administrators are taking the situation.
1: Yeah. I I appreciate you staying on top of it. and And I think it's kind of indicative of the times in a way that we learn more every week or certainly every two weeks as we go through this. And there's so many unknowns going forward, and I imagine what we report on during next week's podcast um, will be, you know, we'll know even more that we didn't know this week, Uh, but that's sort of the world we live in right now. Well, we're doing our best uh, to stay on top of the situation and provide timely updates both on K-12 public schools, charter schools, and uh, higher education, our colleges and universities and how they're impacted. We're watching the the state meetings and the state conversations. And uh, so we'll continue to share the news at the homepage at www.idahoednews.org. And if you're on Twitter, if you're on social media, probably worth giving us a follow at Idaho Ed News. That's where we uh, break some of our biggest stories and live tweet some of the um, big events and press conferences. But I know we've got... April was a, an amazingly busy, uh, historic month um, for a lot of reasons that weren't very fun And we're entering a new chapter, or at least the state is attempting to enter a new chapter with the reopening here on May 1st. Uh, And as schools make these decisions, a lot of schools, as we've reported previously, have said they're just going to close for the rest of the academic year. Uh, But there are dozens uh, that have yet to make their decision. And as they wrestle with this over the next couple of weeks, we'll be there to follow that story uh, and share the news. And so please reach out again if you're in the education community and you want to share your school's experience and share news with parents or patrons, uh, we would be happy uh, to work with you to share that out. That's going to be one of the biggest stories that we follow uh, throughout these next few weeks into the month of May.
0: Yeah. We're going to try to stay on top of a lot of things here in the next few weeks, the reopening of schools, the uh, superintendent's lawsuit against the legislature and the state board. Also school elections is a, that's a story I'm hoping to drop sometime next week because while some school districts have put bond issues on hold in the midst of this uh, coronavirus ban- pandemic. There are going to be some ma- ballot measures o- on the ballot in May. Now, this is a weird election because it's all absentee voting, so you have to get your ballot by May 19th and get it returned by June 2nd. But that election is coming up, and there are going to be some some bond issues and levies around the state. We'll have the roundup of that uh, hopefully sometime next week. And, you know, there are other elections. There are uh, some primaries, uh, legislative primaries that are worth watching. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that as well. Just a, a lot, a lot to get to, a lot to stay on top of. We're going to try to do our best to give you the most timely and relevant information we can.
1: Yeah. And as you wait uh, for Kevin's story about the May election, if you want to pass the time and head over to the Idaho Secretary of State's uh, website, I believe that's IdahoVotes.gov, IdahoVotes.gov, you can find out how the absentee election will work in May and you can actually request your ballot be delivered to your house through that website. So as right. you wait uh, for if Kevin's story...
0: Request their ballot by- the election date, the original yeah. election date, which is May 19th, and you need to make sure it's returned by June 2nd. So, if you haven't done that yet, and you have, uh, and if you're, you know, if you haven't done that yet, you should do that as soon as possible. It takes, uh, it took me about two weeks to get the ballot that are requested. So, you do want to do that as quickly as possible.
1: But it only takes about five
0: minutes to hop online.
1: To right. Do the it. application process is a snap. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you're already registered, uh, for me, uh, it, it recognized me when I put my information in. And so uh, the system knew who I was once I gave it my information. Then I requested yep. my ballot. It's going to make election night a little bit different. Probably won't be much election pizza uh, this year in newsrooms. And we can talk well, yeah, about that. if you that. order
0: the election pizza on May 19th, you'll be eating it by yourself. Because the, the election, the, the voting... <laughs> right. This is what is going to be election night for us is going to be June 2nd, because that's the the date when election results are announced. So even though you're supposed to get your ballot by May 19th, request your ballot by May 19th and return it by June 2nd, we won't have results until the 2nd. So. It will yeah. be a different election. It's going to be a very different election because it's all vote by mail. It's all absentee balloting. We uh, don't really know what that's going to mean in terms of turnout. The early indications, uh, our friend Bill Spence from the Lewiston Tribune looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Very slow response so far to the call for uh, re- requesting absentee ballot. Not a whole lot of uh, not many people had responded and not many people had requested ballot at that point so how yeah, that plays out yeah and, and you know the primary elections where the turnout tends to be low to begin with
1: yeah breaking up there just a little bit uh but you were talking about how uh, bill spence our friend from the lewiston tribune was tracking uh, the results it's early but so far it may be a little slow requesting those absentee ballots i think that's a good place to leave off uh, for this week uh, before may 19th we'll get back in Uh, on the Extra Credit Podcast and talk a little bit more about how the primary election will work this year, because it will be very different and because there will still be a handful of school uh, elections across the state this month. But thanks so much. And
0: Uh, and again, a few legislative elections, a few legislative primaries. Contested
1: legislative primaries, certainly. Uh, 2020 is a big election year for a lot of reasons. Um, So it will be a, a, a big election Uh, especially depending on what district uh, you live in. But uh, thanks so much for joining us. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this intersection of education policy and education
0: politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week and stay safe.